This is Van Luck the Ghost, and we are live on our YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, and Facebook channels with Asher Lobb for the first time. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Phantom. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we like to do band music type of interviews. We've been doing them since 2016, and it's cool that we have Asher here. And uh, we've got a bunch of background information on you that you provided. Um, so it, it, you have been, uh, you got like a fan base over 100K. Uh, you've been in the US, UK, and Canada. Um, you've been on PBS like three times, and you've actually two. played at Madison uh, two times? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe. Three. Unless there's so, a third that I forgot about. <laughs> yeah, it said three on your profile, but maybe I don't know. Oh. <laughs> um, cool. And then uh, you, you played uh, Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, many, many more. So you're out there really doing it. And uh, I've got your bio, but uh, maybe we start, like you tell me about your background. Maybe when did you start music? When did you get into music? I, I started it in diapers, uh, to be clear. Uh, started uh, playing the classical violin, um, the age of two and a half. Uh, not an actual violin, but a uh, margarine box, because my fingers were too small <laughs> and they wrapped that, that uh, box around with... Um, fake strings, which were really rubber bands, just so I could get the fingering. <laughs> and then I moved to yeah. an actual tiny Chinese violin when I was about three, four, and I moved up each level playing the Suzuki Suzuki method, which is like a Japanese method. Yeah, you basically memorize music, but you also learn basic etudes and scales. Oh, cool. So that's where yeah, it started. I lived to I lived wow, I lived in Tokyo from 2004 to 2006. So I have a little bit of Japanese no comprehension. Yeah. Well, I actually lived there. Yeah. Physically, I didn't, I was actually there, but um, yeah, it wow. was fantastic. But um, yeah. So yeah, it's a fantastic environment. With musicians, I was just really impressed because like you could go all over the city, uh, especially in Shibuya and people would, they would be channeling different genres. So you could go to a club in, in like Rapongi and then somebody would be channeling Coltrane. And another club, it's like R&B. And another club, it's like punk. It was like really interesting. Uh, it was like their take on it. It was like their Japanese version of it. Which oh, beautiful. was pretty fantastic. I thought it was really cool to watch. You know, being a musician myself, I thought it was really interesting. But um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and it was the original type of music they had too. But the fact that they would channel all these other forms was pretty good. So... You were kind of was was this something that you wanted to do, or were you, you you did your parents kind of want want to get push you in that in that direction because they had been musicians? Uh, well, they were musicians. Um, <laughs> they were professional musicians. I think they were thinking, oh, it's a really good extracurricular. It's good for like mind mm -hmm. development, so on and so forth. Um, they sort of took after my aunt, who's in the Boston Symphony, and other musicians in the family. Okay. Okay, so, so I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, except I'm not like, I'm not a straight ahead uh, traditional classical musician anymore. I mean, I have the background mm -hmm. and, and I do play with orchestras, but uh, my focus is more in the electronic realm uh, of production and blending that with uh, violin. Oh, that's and awesome. Featuring the violin, yeah. So you do, you do like studio work with people who are doing like electronic genre? electronic music type genre yes so i produce some myself and i collaborate with various artists um you know in the us and in and in, in europe 
and um, I try to, you know, collaborate with with electronic producers. Uh, and my my focus is really on featuring <clears throat> the violin and giving it giving it sort of like this this spotlight uh, within the mm -hmm. electronic realm of music, um, because I feel like it has significant contributions to the electronic world that I, I haven't been realized yet. Uh, yeah, I don't think that they're like. <clears throat> Yeah, it's only totally, like, yeah. Well, I like the idea when like ELO introduced like orchestration into rock. They had to kind of like a Beatles esque sound, and then they threw all these like or all the orchestration in the in the violins they did. And I thought yeah. that when I heard, it, I said that's really fantastic to go in that direction. You know, to to, to put more orchestration in. I mean, I had already seen bands like Yes that was doing a lot of classical type inspired progressive rock. But yeah. ELO kind of came in with the violins. And then that was like a little different approach. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, but uh, the, the reason why electronic really works very well in general with uh, strings is because it's very melodic. Uh, the rhythm has got, uh, it's a sort of like a predictable yeah. back rhythm, typically. I mean, I know there's all sorts of subgenres. Um, and, and and like it's the type. What I love about the genre, genre, sorry, about the genre is that it 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 gives space to an artist like myself to bring in something sophisticated from the classical okay. realm, which is my background, and still present a melody that is attractive and sort of hip, consumable kind of by the listener. Yeah, it's kind of a hip thing because you you know because a lot of electronic music they're using like I have drum machines. You know, between 808s and analog, you know, machines, I've got all kinds of, you know, 727s, 808s, whatever. But within electronic music, it's kind of famous for like Lindrums, 808s, 909s, stuff like mm -hmm. that. And and the ability, you know, I, and my role in a lot of our synths, we try to channel with our polyphonics what you on your violin or what an orchestra does. It's like a, a synthesis, when we have a pad, we're trying to channel kind of classical tones that because we're trying mm -hmm. to do chords that will actually mimic what a big orchestra would sound like on a pad you know mm -hmm. so it kind of fits within new, that kind of genre in my opinion but to actually use a yeah. real instrument instead of the synth <laughs> yeah yeah well um i mean there's some beautiful midis uh and I, I play around with midis myself also in production um what i've been doing with my violin in the studio actually with some recent collaborations um is is uh, sort of showcasing a little bit of well a little bit a lot of improvisation but also the violin layers um mm -hmm. the orchestral violin layers in addition to that electric guitar solos uh through the electric oh, wow. violin so oh so you use an electric violin and you use like a standard kind of orchestra uh, yeah if you violin. If, if you want a little show and tell i have them right over here yeah yeah i don't mind that as long as we, yeah we can look at that Give me one second. Yeah, I'll bring it over here. So, so which one's this one going to be? Is this the electric or this, the? Or the this is this is the electric. electric. Oh, that's awesome. And Camera, it's a closed body. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's. You know, it's not just because of the cool looks. It also has some fantastic volume control. Oh, wow. Um, is it like a guitar? Does it have pickups like a guitar? 
Uh, it's fretless. It does not uh -huh. have frets, um, which I don't really need because I feel the notes. I don't really mm -hmm. need the reference as much. Um, but it, it plays like an electric guitar. If you hear some recordings that'll, that will be coming out, you'll hear, oh, yeah, you won't be able to tell a difference. <laughs> Um, wow. So you can so, actually channel like solos and bend the strings in a similar way or are you like limitations because of the instrument? Can you do like I would the say pitch bends? I would say identical way. Um, okay, wow. I, I mean, I've, I play with a lot of electric guitars and I don't really think that there's a difference. Uh, and I play electric guitar, by the way. But Yeah, um, yeah. So that's awesome. Can you I do harmonics? Can you do harmonics on it? So that's something that the guitar probably does a better job than the violin with the distortion effects. Yeah, I could play har like harmonics and um, I mean, I could even just do it just rather regular violin. Um, but uh, like chord changes, it's a little bit better, I would say, on a guitar. Yeah. Um, but you can still do some cool, cool chord changes, playing double stops yeah. and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I love, well, the weird thing about me is I try to channel guitar on my synth. I, I can't play guitar, but I've, I've for many years, I've tried to create guitar tones on my synthesizer so I can replicate guitar sounds by just doing the sound design so it would mimic mm -hmm. like harmonics and feedback and pitch bends and hammer-ons and sliding the, down the neck. I've found ways to actually re replicate that on a keyboard, which is yeah. a different technique <laughs> it's it's i totally get it it is a diff different technique and uh, as somebody who plays keyboard like i have i i def and i i work with actually synth keyboardists in at live venues um who do a similar thing to that um i mean it's, some of the guys have like really authentic tones a lot of the mm -hmm. guys i mean these are expensive midis uh yeah 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 you, you have know. to play around i i do a lot of analog stuff to replicate and then stack tons of effects and try to through the signal processing, I end up getting it to it through sound design. So it's a different aspect. But um, so uh, cool. yeah, I think it's cool that you're actually using like the, the electric, and and the classical like a, a standard like um, um, concert violin, right? Using both. Yeah, yeah. This is the uh, this is my acoustic classical. This is much more expensive, but I mean they're both yeah. both in the thousands. Both. But this is yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. But this is an open body, so on a live stage, it doesn't have the the, the versatility of an electric. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't do distortion or guitar mimic. How do you mic mode. that when you're? How does that get mic'd when you're live? So to minimize the feedback, it's got to go through a quarter inch input. Okay. So really like any instrument, and um, you know because of the f holes here, there's a lot of resonance in the woods, so you can end up getting feedback. But, you know, I, I over the over like 15 to 20 years of doing this live, uh, you know, I've got the pedal set up. It's just I find that the electric is a thousand yeah, times you easier. Have, you have more control, right? You have a lot more control. Yeah. And it's funny because when the sound engineer is looking on stage and if there's like a little bit of feedback, they look at me. I'm like, uh-uh, not any, like <laughs> never, I never give feedback because I'm doing yeah. the electric. It's the guy with the mic. Yeah. It's the guy singing, you know? Yeah, because they're probably looking at you because like all violins are famous for that. So they're like, uh, it's you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Notoriously, the instrument, you know, the string instruments, they get the feedback. But not yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but I was looking in your background and, um, you know, you, you did talk about talking about like how you worked earlier, um, you know, really early. And 
and you you never rebelled against that. You kept on going, right? You, you did the Phil, Buffalo Philharmonic at like 13, right? Yeah, that was a uh, landed. That I was pretty lucky. That was cool. Um, I played with the Greater Buffalo Youth Orchestra. Like as a kid, did um, NISMA auditions and competitions. Uh, you know, just it was just what my siblings did and and my peers. So that's what I did, and um, it was pretty intense. Pretty intense classical upbringing. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, uh, moving to New York in 2002 was really my opportunity to hit the ground running and actually earn money doing what I'd learned my whole life. Uh, so, when you were, for. so when you were there in New York, is that when you really started hitting all those big stages? Yeah. Well, uh, it happened pretty quickly within like a few years. I, you know, I just, uh, I sent in some demo tapes, got accepted to, you know, just different orchestras and, um, Play, you know, played on weekends to work my way through school. And, uh, and then I, you know, I started doing some big venues. Um, and, and I, you know, I started play, hanging out with some, some band members and we, we, we started to, mm -hmm. to travel a little bit, play in Georgia and uh, LA and Texas, um, Florida. I remember yeah, while I was an undergrad, so we we're doing some cool gigs. It was fun. That's pretty cool. I didn't so expect did you, yeah. So when did you kind of cross into the pop or like electronic or more modern music? When did you kind of make that transition? Because a lot of people that I've talked to that are a classical, they kind of stay in that lane and they, and they stay there unless they get burned out of it and then they want to go into pop or they want to go into experimental. They, they go like total opposite what they were doing. Yeah, um, I would say I probably pushed, I probably pushed that the pop genre around uh almost immediately, actually, it was really within the first year that I started playing in New York. Cause I realized that there was a demand for it. Um, mm -hmm. started like at weddings and private events and it was like, okay, I could, I could really like show these musicians and these band leaders that I'm not just part of the string ensemble at the cocktail hour. I could play with the band and that gave me other, all sorts of opportunities. And I bought a Zeta electric, uh, mm -hmm. which was heavy as hell on my, on my back. Very heavy. Um, that's heavy. About it's heavy. heavy. Yeah, Very it's heavy. heavy. Like um, yeah, and it's on your shoulder. So, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that's it heavy. was. It was really bad for for somebody like me with my, um, I don't know, low bone density, whatever you want to call it. I'm like, I'm a weakling, you know. <laughs> I, I oh. pro I've had. It's not even that that I'm weak muscular wise. Just my muscles have been imbalanced uh, due to playing the violin for so many years and. Uh, I've had chronic inflammation for many decades. Uh, okay, that, so that's led me some, down some. Yeah, that's yeah, led so me I, down some bad paths. So I saw you had a health. So you were able to get over. I don't know how much you want to get into that. Um, you say that, that you had a nightmare like in 2014. That you had challenges. Yeah. Do you want to go into that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty much an open book. Uh, just my listeners, if they're checking this out, they probably already heard it like 52 times. <laughs> so I don't want to bore them to death you don't want to uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah in a nutshell uh yeah I, i'm i'm happy sharing basically i i i was in a wheelchair um due to adrenal insufficiency it actually happened six years after i was diagnosed with an inflammatory disease um mm -hmm. and just kind of ignored it but i had to i obviously was very fatigued regularly so on and so forth and became more and more difficult to to lift the instrument but the adrenal insufficiency landed me in a wheelchair i was pretty much a vegetable for many months and almost lost everything, lost my career. And uh, I swung back 
long story, very long story short. And I, I got better, uh, with a lot of, uh, with a lot of focus and, um, motive, self motivation. I'm going to yeah. emphasize the word self <laughs> and, uh, and it's kind of reshaped my, my life, my outlook on life and my, uh, career outlook as well. And sort of moved me into the dancing violinist realm and, yeah, yeah, because he talks about in your background, you reinvented yourself as a dancing violinist, and then you you got into hip-hop and pop and EDM and rock, which is really kind yeah. of interesting because what I try to do with, like, I have my own independent label for the music I do. I call it expansive sound because when I was doing oh. electronic music, people were trying to put me into EDM and trance, and I'm like, no, I like to do fusion. I like to do, like, uh, you know, bebop. I, 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 you know, depend on the day, I might try to channel the, the clash or, or, or channel like, yes. So I'm kind of going however I want. I don't want to get pinned down. So it's interesting that you cross genre to the kind of this expansive kind of view that you've come classical and then you're crossing into all these other, other genres. Well, let me ask you, cause you mentioned that, do you, is, is your like eclectic production style a result of your your listeners are you responding to them or is it something no. that you want to do i grew up listening to like everything my father had a combination of like nat king cole frank sinatra stevie wonder and the beatles he was all over the map he basically anything that was good didn't matter what genre if it was really good he, he would get it and so i grew up and then my older brother seven years older than me he was listening to like zeppelin and doors and all this and my mom was listening to the carpenter so my whole house was full of all these different genres and i liked them all and i said well if i'm going to be a musician it's like i kind of like it all so being a keyboardist like well i could play it like you know because we can it's a writing instrument so if i could figure out yeah. what's going on i could get into anything and that's kind of a very eclectic taste because i kind of grew up around music like that that that's how i got into it Totally get it. Um, so I, I feel like I try to I try to respond to my listeners as often as as I can, and I try to adapt my music to meet their needs, even though it's sometimes painful because it's like, you know, when I'm live streaming on Facebook, they're like, "Can you play Elvis?" And it's, I know they're going. <laughs> some of them are going to be watching this and be like, "Shame on you, Asher!" You know, uh, and I love Elvis. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, but. Yeah. There's so much out there that I feel like people need to hear. Um, yeah, maybe you don't want to do Elvis. Maybe you wanted, wanted to show them something maybe that you think they would like, but maybe they don't know they would like it. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a lot of open-minded uh, people that I'm privileged to be able to play like live to on Facebook um, in particular and just other channels, YouTube, Instagram. Mm -hmm. But it's... Um, it's most gratifying when I get to play a, a blend of different genres that show mm -hmm. the sophisticated edge of the violin, but also bring in contemporary type rhythm, specifically in electronic. Well, uh, you know, yeah, because kids today, like a lot of kids today, you know, the first thing they look at when they see a violin is like, well, no, I want, I want to like, I want an MPC. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they 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 want to get a like, they want to get a matrix based producer machine. Is I want nothing to do with the guitar or the drums or anything. They want to go right yeah. to that. And I think it's really cool when you have a musician that's talented that can show people, maybe you want to use a flute, right? 
maybe you want to use a, a violin. Maybe you want to get into like I was talking to an artist that was on um uh yeah like it was on a, um a harpsichord, which nobody is doing, right? Nobody does. It's like, but yeah, it's cool. They were doing something really cool with it. I said, well, that's pretty interesting, you know. And it's just, I think people should try to approach it like a vibraphone. I mean, back in the fifties, everybody in jazz like has a vibraphone in the but like how many kids are learning that today? You know, not really a lot. Not too many. Yeah. So, you know, if you listen to jazz, you're going to find all kinds of cool instruments. But, you know, like whether or not you you, you have that focus. But um, I think well, it's cool what you're doing because kids need to see like everything they can. Yeah. Um, well, on the topic of jazz, I, um, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough to play with a bunch of jazz musicians. And, and I always feel a little bit kind of deficient <laughs> because I, I don't. I don't have like again. I'm a classical musician with like good improv um, yeah, yeah, chops, yeah. but but some of these fusion guys play like Chick Corea, and it's like, yeah, wow, you, like you know, <laughs> and it's or, like or Coltrane. <laughs> and I want to sit down, yeah, and I want to sit down, and I want to like really like nail those lines. But there's just like there's a whole world of music to consume out there, and I just don't have, simply have the time. Like I'm spending half my time just wor working out the midis and the programming and the DAW. Oh, yeah. And, and like How, upgrading what, what the think, equipment. What do you think about that? Being a classical musician, like you, most of the time, you got totally organic acoustic environments. But when you get into the electronic world, now you're into the MIDI. Now you're into the, like the DAWs. Um, do do I would think do, do I don't know making an assumption. Would classical musicians, when they look at the DAW, they like, well, I know I don't like that. I like to just do it live. I'm, I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to play with it. I know a bunch of uh, classical musicians who are like, it's just, you know, they, they, they're most comfortable with uh, just reading music and yeah, uh, just reading it off the sheet. I totally get it. Yeah. You know, if you've been doing, if you've been reading sheet music and it just comes easy, why do you want to bend over backwards trying to learn all this tech? It's a lot of, it's a big uh, learning curve. It really is. Even, even, <laughs> even DJing. Do you DJ, yeah. do you DJ live? Uh, well, I've got like, uh, yeah, I, I basically do live performance and I've got a lot of tools. So I've got like, like a Nakai force that basically clip based Ableton like workflow, right? And it's on a matrix grid machine that can basically kick off. I can have a, I can have a song in an arranger mode, but the song is structured eight lanes and then each lane is a clip and then I can actually kick them off. And I can restructure them and I can change them so I can just run. I don't like CDJ, these uh, kind of 64 key pad systems where I can just kick off my song and rearrange it. So I can start with my song as I wrote it. And then if I feel like it, I can just totally destroy it and rearrange it and just kick it off however I want. Or just do like a DJ set and just be kicking off specific songs and then kind of change them. In, on, on demand because I've got the structures all clipped out and then I can say in, in Ableton yeah. I actually have a device that's Ableton like it's called an Akai force it basically can work in an Ableton format but it has ah. its own format and it can go into what is called an arranger mode in arranger ah. mode it, it can kick off clips however yeah. you want so it that's has so cool. tons of control so it's not like a CDJ where I have like 64 keys and all kinds of controls. I right. can go into the filters. I can go 
instead of envelopes that can go to effects on demand and change things, everything in real time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what I, I like. I'm a, I, I'm a control freak. <laughs> hey, uh, I, th that's a good pun there. I, I, um, I'd love to see you in action. Yeah, I just like, I just like having control over my gear. Like you see all my gear. I'm, I'm kind of an old school synthesis. So I, I got like a rack, a sense and modular sense. And I've got my pad controls and I've, I've got my own mixer. So if I go to a club, I have my own mixer that's right on my board. So I can control my own mix before it even hits the soundboard because I'm a control freak. <laughs> I, I get you. Like I, I feel this, I feel kind of protective of my, performance as well even even playing just the violin with the whole band uh next to me um at this point after many years of of like depending on uh the sound engineer for my tone and many of many of these guys they're just not they're not they're not cutting it um yeah, I, get it. I know what you're they're like overwhelmed <laughs> by like 30 pieces on a bandstand and it's yeah. like you know what if if you're too overwhelmed like i'm just gonna learn how to mix and like how to how to present like sound. the perfect tone to you. So you just keep it dry. And uh, that's what you got to really do with these big productions. You just have to have Yeah, I started tone. showing up in clubs and I just decided I want my own board. So I have my own mixing board before it ever hits them and I can control it. And I keep the levels from blowing up because I can see it and I, I can see yeah. all my meters. And I just want to keep my sound to, to sound like what I'm supposed to sound like. Right. So, yeah. So make sure and I can hear it and I can control it. You know, unless he really messes it up, I, I, I can usually keep it under control. But yeah, it's a matter of like, I, I, I know what I want. So I'm not one of these guys that doesn't know what I want. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I think in the position, you probably know what you want. So yeah, no, I could completely relate. So, is, so when you got into these other genres, like which one is the one that you started first? Did you start hip hop first or pop for it first? Or is all of them at the same time? Um, I would say hip hop kind of came last cause I, um, I wasn't immediately into it so much. Um, I was more mm -hmm. into pop, felt like it was more melodic and fit the violin better. And yeah, turns out there's that. like, yeah, but there's just, there, there's a real appreciation for violin in the hip hop scene, which is interesting. Um, you can see that cause the hip hop has started to, you know, the channel jazz, you know, when you, when you started getting like, uh, Kind of like Omar started bringing in jazz type of feel. You know, they started bringing. There was lots of bands that were taking jazz samples. You know, back in the day, even in early hip hop, they would yeah. sample Coltrane or they sample like you know India the Monk or they they go and they would pick things out and pick the clips out. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And I always always fall on the guys that were had the interesting sampling because people thought sampling's terrible, but some producers are so good at what they pick what they mm -hmm. choose to sample and i'm like wow this guy's got a deep knowledge of music he's actually sampling really interesting things and then that that's when i started getting more of an appreciation because i was a, back in the day, keyboard players i'm like what are these guys doing this clipping stuff and like they're not writing their own stuff so but then i started looking at wow they're actually very creative in what they pick yeah to sample and I said, yeah okay, it is an art it, it is an art if you do it right. But a lot, a lot of, a lot of guys out there. I mean, a lot of guys that I've worked with uh, live, I, I have not been exactly blown away by in terms of their skill. Mm -hmm. uh, 
at least in relating to other musicians. So, mm-hmm. Some of the festival DJs, I'm I'm more impressed, much more impressed with like their taste. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, because uh, because uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, a lot of DJs I work with, they just they're just kind of doing their thing, and they're not trying to connect with. They're not interested in connecting with the other musicians on stage. You know, the DJ orchestra type of uh, yeah, yeah situation. Um, which is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to DJ myself because I felt like I know what works with the violin, and and I'd like to, you know, control it more. Produce, yeah, <laughs> yeah pr- produce the kind of music live that really works with it. So, sort of, yeah, you have a better act. aesthetic. You know, knowing the instrument, you you have a better appreciation of where it could go. And I like yeah. I do say that some of the one of the things I have a problem with some DJs today is like you know they're on a trampoline up and down with six, six pack and they're like not to push them down but you got some people that's like it's more of a performer the more performers and maybe they wrote it in their lab but when they go to perform or, it it's kind of like they just hit the play button and they're bouncing all over the place and like i'm, I'm a performer like i'm gonna i'm a musician i'm gonna play and you guys yeah. are like bouncing around and like so i don't know if you're really yeah. playing or you just <laughs> yeah i mean like the big the big festival DJs, uh, yeah, I I don't know. They're, I, do people? Like, I don't think people care what what they're doing back there. Like I I, I think they're well, just as long excited as they about hear the what they want to. Yeah, as long as they want to hear the beat and they've got the this, this stuff going, you know, it doesn't matter if it's already pre-programmed on the loop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, guys like um, Griffin, you know, who I had the privilege of playing with a few years ago um you know he's he's like a big big producer with uh not epic records i'll remember um interscope interscope records he's okay. uh, like he's the epitome of an artist like he as far like compared to these other guys like he's a pianist a guitarist like percussionist he he plays okay, the so instrument so he knows how to do, yeah so I, what i've seen is i've seen guys who get on stage and they've got like a modular synth and they've got their cdj and they so they're actually performing and actually playing the music. And then I've seen other yeah. guys have got, have got like a little stick and they're bouncing around and they're doing all this stuff. They get, they're like a pit, they're like a hype man. Right. So it's like a, like the difference between like an old school DJ that was actually on the platters, actually playing vinyl and actually doing it. Oh and, yeah. You know, you know, that's a talent. If you go to the old school, yeah, they got some is. clubs in New York where you have to, they're like vinyl only DJs. That you yeah. have to show you know how to do it, right? <laughs> Dumbo you know. vinyls. I have a friend actually at Dumbo vinyls, and they're they're he's, they've been pushing that whole uh, yeah. that whole trend. Yeah, what I'm kind like, of like you really have to show that you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, and then that that I always have respect when somebody is really doing the craft. Then I'm yeah. like, fine, that's cool. That 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 that's cool. But if you're just pushing a button and bouncing, I'm like, okay. I could yeah, I, 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 lo- I love the vinyl type texture. It's a cool, you know, what's the word? Like it brings you back to the seventies sort of. It's yeah. It's just a, you know, the scra- really scratching and really making the choices between the multiple decks and the transitions yeah. is yeah, art. The I mean, you watch old school. Yeah. If you watch somebody like 82, 83, 84, when they really started doing it and you got saw the skill of some of these guys, I used to see them live and I'm like, wow. These guys actually are doing something. I 
as a musician, I did, wasn't that impressed until I actually went to a show and saw somebody actually doing it and doing it really well. And I said, wow, you, yeah. that actually is a skill to actually do it yeah. right. It's got to be real hard. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it's swung back, but it's like you need like a real well-organized deck of, yeah, I don't you know, you to know really exactly know. where your records are. Yeah. I mean, you're totally, or you, what happens is these guys are like hyper fans of the music they're using. So yeah. they know everything about it. They know where everything is. Yeah. So they actually know how to make the choices. And that's the cool thing about a DJ because they know how to get the groove. And I actually worked as a producer with a DJ one time. It was really cool because they're very groove focused. So if you're actually trying to write a really hit song, having a guy that knows what where the grooves are or can identify grooves is a good producer because they can actually tell you when you're not hitting it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's, it's actually a good talent if you if you have the guys who are like really focused on on that. But, but. You know, I I wonder these these vinyl DJs. I wonder if are they just come in to the gig with multiple suitcases of of yeah. They, back in the day, they'd have these like big uh, like uh, they were actually kind of like my road cases. They were like road cases that held the vinyl. They actually were a road case type of format, like what you put. <laughs> your amps and stuff in but they had the vinyls in them and they would bring them onto the stage with these road cases because they they were wanted to make, protect them so they were actually in these road cases and they'd have them up on the on the racks and they they have them in special orders based on what they were doing and it's very it was intricate i mean they put a lot of time in wow. and i realized how oh much yeah time actually prepping i can't much imagine how much prep goes yeah into just like in us you know any musician that puts the practice in he's like these guys are practicing at the level of a, a because they are <laughs> i mean it's also got it's got to be a bit stressful i mean for me if i'm djing an event like a wedding or something the i mean i constantly get these requests for all these random songs and and i would panic if i if i didn't have access to an online database where yeah, i could just yeah. dig it up on wi-fi and then throw it in and then match the bpm but yeah, that's the oh my <laughs> god if i were in the 70s i'd lose my mind i'd be like i'm sorry i don't have that song i had it you know you have yeah. to have a huge well, repertoire. Yeah, their repertoire was crazy, you know, and the amount of stuff they would have that they had to carry, like it is today, like, okay, why do you want that overhead? But there's an authenticity about it. It's kind of like punk music. I always tell people, like, when I'm producing, I don't, I really like having a punk aesthetic. If you think about, like, a Trent Reznor or The Clash or or any of you the know, replacements, if, if you come at it something with a kind of nirvana point of view right if you're you're doing all this really high high productions type stuff but then having a lo-fi sound like early nirvana or or having a sound like like paul westerberg and the replacements out of minnesota there's something honest about having that kind of guttural attack that's very honest and so mm -hmm. like i would go and say well, did you really want to overproduce this with all this stuff or want to be bare bones and sound like joe strummer in the clash because there's something about that that's pretty powerful. You know, I, I like going at that kind of edge because I think there's something exciting about it. I, I like it, but it's my Very cool. Are you playing are you playing like MIDI keyboard uh, on stage when you're doing live DJ? Live I actually DJ? play I play real synths. I actually have Junos, like actual synthesizers, not MIDI's, like real real synthesizers that are not channeling from a, a laptop. They're actually like Yamahas and Profits and Moogs, they're actually uh, full 
either monophonic or polyphonic full sense, like Jupiter's and poly, you know, Juno 106 and stuff like that. That's awesome. Huh. Well, it's an old school. Cause I'm like, I'm a child of the seventies. So I saw, you know, some of these bands, like the first showed up with like the Pesh Mode and Joy Division and the Cure and Duran Duran, you know, Nick Rhodes on his Jupiter 8. And I would just sit there watching them. And I read the keyboard magazines, you know, I was like 18 years old, look going wow. into Guitar Center and actually looking at a Jupiter or looking at a Prophet 5, you know, and I was very enamored with them. I'm like, wow, these things, like people at the time were denigrating them and saying these aren't real instruments. Now everybody huh. wants like a Prophet 5, they want an Oberheim or they want a Jupiter because they actually are, have a lot of character. Uh, people might not realize, but they do have a lot of character. Each model is like very unique. Well, there's always haters out there. Yeah, there's always some hater. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's there's haters for the electric violin. There's like there's like groups of like classical musicians who they they call the electric violin. Um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, it's like um, I'm trying to think of the word. It's like a sacrilegious that's what they call it oh that kind of reminded yeah. me when dylan dylan went electric they called him judas they started yelling at him like <laughs> there's a famous like tape of of dylan going from being sounding like woody guthrie and Aldo guthrie and he suddenly came out electric and his fans in london started yelling judas yeah i remember that <laughs> but i i know i remember i like went to the museum in a bunch of museums um and i remember that actually being like one of the points that stuck out in my mind but the electric violin is not something brand spanking new you know so it's i find it yeah. really funny that there's still people out there trying to like reverse time and bring us back to the classical age and pretend like that's actually going to happen <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, because you have to, music has to progress. So, you know, the electric guitar, there's a lot of folk guys, well, I won't touch it. Okay, fine, yeah. don't touch it. But, you know, Dylan was in the folk world for how long? Channeling Woody Guthrie and Olo Guthrie. And then eventually, yeah, bored with it and he went electric. And it kind of like, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with people wanting to stay on an acoustic instrument. I understand like a piano, yeah, a grand piano is great. But like a Hammond B3 or, or or playing like any of these modern synths. Yeah, I love I love a pure piano sound. There's reasons why I will have a piano based song and maybe not I'll throw a synth on it because it can it can evoke a lot of emotion. And and mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's like an acoustic guitar. It's a writing instrument. You can do really intimate type of stuff with it. And mm -hmm. so but it doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, Stevie Wonder used a really awesome synthesizer on Saturn. The song Saturn, it's amazing, you know, and he used this like a, 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 a he used a dream machine. Uh, and uh, that, that, that machine was like channeling like analog polyphonic sound. And it sounded uh, really crazy strings that don't sound like real strings. And, but it yeah. sounds like all world strings. And you're like, wow, that's pretty fantastic. So. <laughs> well, that might've been the closest that they could get to strings at that time. Yeah, but it sounded like how Stevie interpreted it. Like, well, I'm not going to try to make them sound like strings. I'll let them be what they are. And then it sounded like Saturn became this thing. Was like, wow, if you let that synth be what it is, yeah, it actually becomes. <laughs> yeah, and of course, he sounds great on every recording. Yeah, well, yeah, he's he's just a phenomenal. Whether he's playing organ or piano or synth, he's just like on it. He's, he's just one of the yeah. guys like you look at like, okay, oh, I get even one tenth of where he is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
You know, uh, you know when, when you mentioned Bruno Mars, he's I would say he's in that category of Stevie Wonder in terms of just not exactly yeah. a genre, but he he sort of brought pop music. He's given pop music its character again. Um, yeah, well, he's got the talent. He got when you get these guys to actually know how to play, and 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 then they bring that 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 talent to the music. That's why I really love the fact that you're playing the violin in this age where people would say, "Well, I'm just going to MIDI that." to a sampled violin and then play it on a keyboard, right? Through a MIDI keyboard, instead of actually having you play it on the real instrument. Cause this is nothing like playing a real, a tone that's supposed to be on the instrument that it's coming from. You know, that, that my opinion as a producer, that there's something about the authenticity of a real flute player playing on a flute rather than running a sample flute on MIDI. Yeah, you know? so so people people who are capable of hiring you know, just bringing in the, you know, the, the MIDI strings, uh, they, you know, they hire me anyway for, for studio recordings because I bring like a unique kind of tone uh, to the project and also um, not just the tone, but also the notes, you know, the, the, yeah, the character, the, the, the improvisation that, you know, you'd have to pretty much spend more money uh, hiring like a, a producer to write out the notes and then have like a classical musician play it. And I'm, sort of created in real, you know, while I'm recording. Well, it's all that te- there's all that technique that's on your actual violin itself. It's like a guitar player. Like if you do nothing but sample the guitars and clip them together, right? It's mm-hmm. not going to be as natural as if you had somebody playing like Jimmy Page, the real guitar work. You yeah. know, the, the real guitar work's always going to exceed what you thought you could do with the studio trickery. <laughs> you know, yeah, in my opinion, but yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I happen to agree with you on all this stuff. I mean, you're you're a musician and and uh, you deal with electronic production, so we can relate to to each other in that in a lot of aspects of this conversation. So it's pretty cool. So, what do you think I, about like? Have you ever like played around with sampling yourself and then manipulating the sample? And, and, yeah. and coming up with something different than what you would have done naturally. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's all these like producer loops type type things that make, make it really easy to kind of throw together together songs. Um, but because, um, because I, I, I am kind of a unique producer, I, I, I always feel like there's something missing in these um, what's the word in these like, cut and paste loops you yeah, know what yeah. i mean like yeah, sort I of like clicks. cut and paste like click here like here's how it's going to sound download the, the loop samples and then and then put them together like a puzzle and it'll sound exactly like that or maybe nah, slightly different yeah. that's the and problem. i feel like i like the verse <laughs> but the chorus kind of sucks and it, you know it's like too skrillex like and I, it, it needs a melody so yeah. so you rather I, just play it that's what i i actually I've gone like anti-DAW where I've gone back to hardware recorders and I actually put down the tracks and hand play the parts rather than trying to clip them. I actually go in and I'll play my Moog baseline through the whole four minutes, actually play it down on a multi-track. So I'm not using a computer. I'm actually using a multi-track recorder and I'll put the baseline down. I'll put the drums down. They're all go on separate tracks and then I can mix and master them like 1970 and it isn't about doing it that way 
that I find actually I learned the song instead wow. of clipping it around as a puzzle. I actually learned my song. Like by the time I'm done producing my song, I actually know how to play it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to go back and relearn it. <laughs> that That's a true musician. That's a true performer. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to get because people are like, I don't want to do it that way. It's like, okay. <laughs> I, so I get, I, I get it. Cause it's like, how much time do you have in a day? Uh, but but, you know, if you have a real passion for music, it's like sometimes you just got to like I'll sit there for hours until I get it right. Because I just want to because I'm yeah. going to have to listen to this music for years. And my li my listeners yeah. are going to judge me on that for years. And I just want it to be right. So, yeah, well, I think this is about knowing an instrument versus being a producer. I think there's a difference. You know, there are people that really might I mean, they don't know how to, they know how to use a MIDI keyboard. They know how to go into the, into the box and move the clips around. And they can be brilliant. And, and their choices of how they move them around and how mm. they make decisions. And, and that's fine. But the, you know, like, is that equal to what, you know, Eddie Hazel did, you know, or, or what, like, you know, any of the, the old, like Clinton, George Clinton or Prince or Tom Petty or any of the people that actually sat in that studio, studio and they were back, you know, in sunset, a sun sound city. And they sat down at that on those and they just played it through or the Allman brothers they all came in and they played it through. I mean, there's something about playing it through that I'm yeah. always going to be like, exile on Main Street, Keith Richards actually in that mansion playing that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, there's something about Keith actually playing it. I'm always going to say exile Main Street to the rock record because he's like, he's, he's doing it. He's living yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 the real the real musicians and the real listeners, they know the difference. Um between them and I like you, you listen to, I mean, guys like Martin Garrix, like I know he's like the biggest DJ in the world, but I don't know. Whenever I see pictures of him or like on social media, it seems, it looks like he's kind of cutting and clipping. Um, I don't know. Is he a live musician? Like the stuff that he's producing? It's like a production. It, to me, it's like the difference between a producer and actually like, you know, you get a guy who actually like a Paul Westerberg, you know, from the replacements, he's, He's a musician and producer, and he does these really deep rock, heartfelt songs, and they're not super big, right? But he can evoke a lot of emotion. Some of his songs have been on soundtracks. I mean, he just had this kind of indie kind of, you know, reverence. He loved, like, Alex Chilton from Big Star, you know, the guy who used to sing in the box tops. And he liked to channel this, like, like Beatlesque kind of honest pop. And there's something about, you know, somebody actually builds a song with the intro and the outro and they've got multiple, you know, the George Martin technique, the Abbey Road type of technique where you've got multiple yeah. songs kind of po po like, you know, phasing in like, like a, like a progressive rock piece or a classical music, you know, it's actually got movements and changes, but where's that in modern music? Where, where are the changes? Where are the key changes? Where are the timing changes? Where's the intro? You know, Where's the outro? <laughs> you know what you're what you're talking about is is uh, I think the the making of Spotify. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think Spotify has created has it's really an offshoot of Google and uh, Facebook. And I'm probably being punished for saying this, but the algorithm. <laughs> but it's like that. Like the, they've created a system where more content, the the better off you are. So it's like people are just pumping out crap people are just like yeah. pumping out as much music as possible and it's 
it's like people who sort of want to keep their keep authentic to to their to their artistry they'll they'll pump out a little bit less just so they can keep the quality of the music but it's it's hard uh to compete against yeah, it's people hard. Like yeah, it's... every day a new song and it's not like they don't care they just need new content so yeah well, the, the problem i have is just the, the old artistry of the 70s like like the the playlisting because I'm a child of the '70s. I like to listen to albums, right? So I like to like I like Tommy. I like Quadrophenia. I like stories. I like born, born, you know, born, uh, you know, born to run. The idea of that song that Springsteen wrote is like it's a story. It's like it's got this like it's built up like it's a you know a wall of sound. He took like six months to put it together. He kept on layering it, layering it, layering it, layering it, and it's just. There's something about the artistry of actually caring about it that you put the effort, you put your like your best, you put your life into it. And it's like how many of these guys writing today are putting their life into it like they feel it's like that's the last thing they might ever do. It's <laughs> it's hard to it's unfortunately it's I think it's unless you you're dealing with a major label, and even then I don't even think that's the case. It's it's hard to make a living. Uh Pouring your heart into six months worth of a song, I did. I did that with Atlantis. Actually, I spent spent many months on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually the song that just came out now. Uh, but uh, I don't do that with every song, and that's why I sometimes need to like, you know, really. I, I release songs pretty much every month, but I, sometimes I have to kind of stagger my original releases with covers because it's something mm-hmm. I don't really have to think about. I got to just pump it out just to keep people yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. sort of engaged. So when you're original, you wrote an original song. Atlantis, that's the song. Yeah. And that's, that's that one took yeah. I mean, I understand what you're saying because I put I spent like two years on my last project. I was going through hours and hours of stuff and then trying to figure out what was gonna work. And it's kind of like an old school way of doing it. It's like you build up this big catalog of stuff and you try to find the things that actually work. And it's like, well, I'm gonna focus on that and I'm gonna whittle it down until I get something out of like, you know, 10 hours worth of work. And, and make it work in like an hour, right? And it, it take 10 hours and drop down to an hour, like the best pieces. And, you know, two years out of your life to try to get to something. And, you know, it's like, oh, what are these other guys were just throwing out two minutes every week? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I, I don't know how much music you're sitting on that you haven't released, but I, I yeah, can't gone. possibly keep up with all the content. So... I can't sit on that much music. Well, I got a bunch. I actually put out stuff all the time, and then I sit on stuff that's like part of a bigger thing because mm-hmm. I kind of into concept. Like I, I like bands like Genesis, the Peter Gabriel Genesis, you know, like mm-hmm. Pink Floyd, uh, like the Who, Quadrophenia, and Tommy. So I'll I'll sit on a project, but I'll put out singles, but mm-hmm. they're not part of that project. They're like okay to keep me out there. I'll put the singles out. But I'll yeah. work on this bigger project because I go I do that type of work and I'm like into progressive rock, you know, or progressive jazz. To me, it kind of crossed together like a fusion band and a progressive rock band. You know, it's not that far apart. They go the same way. You know, so I'm kind of thinking in that mode. So it takes a while yeah. to put those together. You know, to get what you want. You know, sometimes you just naturally come up with something. Like, kind of, what are your like thoughts? Like some musicians I've talked to. They're like, oh, well, it just came to me in the woods or I woke up in the middle of the night and had this full idea or I'm writing it on the napkin. Does it kind of come out of anywhere or do you have like a certain way that you come up with what you're going to work on? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So in the case of Atlantis, um, I I was sort of thinking of, I was sort of imagining a theme, uh, but I was, I, I, I kind of, in that, it's, it's always different with every song, but in the case of Atlantis, I, I was looking to blend three different genres, hip hop, electronic, and, and classical. Uh, and I want to showcase the violin in a way that was sort of like melodically appealing. So, but also kind of sophisticated. And I, I thought of, I started with think, with the pretty much the, you know, the chorus and uh, the main melody and, um, and, and, and then I kind of worked on the keyboard with the, the chord progression and, and, and then I guess the rhythm kind of came later in that case, but in case of neon dreams, probably my first, yeah. What's that? No, that's interesting. They, that the rhythm came later. Cause I talked to so many people today are so beat focused. Like, like that, that's the first thing they ever do. Like in the modern world, like the rhythm is like number one. Yeah. And it's very interesting that you came at it in the way you did. I think that's why well, I love it. I like the fact that you didn't do it that way because I think when you only focus on the rhythm, you kind of get certain results. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I try to focus more on the chord progression more so than the, the rhythm because I, you know, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. And, and there are great producers that focus on the rhythm first, and and great producers that focus on the, the chord progression first and not the melody. Um, in this case, it just it, it I was just thinking the melody, and it, it, I, I'm very happy with with how it turned out. In the case of Neon Dreams, I think it was sort of. I mean, it was a number of years ago, but that, that was probably my, one of my bigger songs. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, that was uh, that was more or less like chord progression with rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking epic symphonic type of type of uh, vibe. If you, if you ever listen to it. Um, how about you? How about yourself? Well, a lot of times I'll start with chord progressions on my I'll set my role into piano mode. And so it will actually, you know, be channeling like an 88 key piano. Yeah. And I can have like a hundred different choices of piano. I pick, and I just try to find the one that's going to fit what I'm trying to do. And what I find sometimes is I'll have my mic and I'll just put my recorder on and I'll do stream of consciousness lyrics, just throwing chords together as a, as a demo track. Because like, it's like if I sing, have my mic open and I have my piano keys there, it's kind of like when you have an acoustic guitar, you can kind of come up with a happy accident, right? You, you just, yeah. I might have an idea that I wrote as a poem and then I'm like, I'm going to use that to channel something and I'm just going to let it go down. And I find it like, you know, I go back to that and maybe like a second or third take is actually really good. And if I spend like too many takes on it, then I destroy the original intent and then I'll start to layer other things on it and kind of just leave it honest. So I kind of come at it with like a stream of consciousness style recording with what I, I used to obsess and be really, oh, I got to do this. And I lately yeah. I've kind of trusted my instincts and do a lot of stream of consciousness recording that actually ends up becoming layers. And then I work on those layers. That's, that's my technique lately. Very, very cool. Um, so I, I could relate to a lot of what you said. Um, the, a happy accident. That's that's a, I like how you use that phrase because because I find that when I'm, I'm in the studio, I'm just constantly trying like a to, to do a better take, and I'm not sure if the previous take was was better than the one that I do now. So I, I'm constantly just adding layer, adding new tracks, but muting them, mm -hmm. um, just in case I kind of change my mind and I like the previous take. Um, but uh, 
happy accidents are really the way to go. Like that's how you, how you discover good music. It's like, Oh yeah, I tried all these different permutations and, and, um, and, and I liked, I liked how this, this baseline worked out with this chord progression and melody. Yeah. I mean, cause there's so many stories like the, like the kinks, like you really got me. That was a broken amp and the producers huh. wanted to, they wanted to throw it out and say, that amp is broken. We can't use that. And the Davis brother, Davies brothers are like, Ray Davies and his brother are like, no, that's it. Don't don't make us. We're we're not gonna do it on the fixed amp. The broken amp is the sound. And yeah. and you know, and it was fa- Hendrix was famous for challenging his recording engineers because they were like, well, we gotta edit this stuff out. It's too noisy. It's too this, too that. But that's what Hendrix sound was. It was all this yeah. feedback. It was all this stuff that wasn't <laughs> normal. And so if you if you edit it out, then you destroy what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so sometimes the innovators are doing stuff that's like, oh, it's a broken amp. Oh, it's out yeah. of key. You know, it's like, well, it's actually good because it's out of key. Because, you know, Lou Reed was famous for going in and actually using out-of-tune guitars. Mm. And engineers used to get ticked off at him because he's like, but then he'd be like, you know what? That, that version actually is the best one to go with that. Yeah, and he would be very adamant that that's what you should use. That's funny. So I, I'm like, I'm pretty retentive with intonation. Um, I cannot stand like I, I have to listen to a recording on my phone and on my in my car and like on three different laptops before I re- before I release it because I want to make sure that there's nothing that I missed in terms of intonation. If something's flat or sharp, drives me insane. Uh, but but the artistry, I get it. I, I totally get what you get what you're saying with like different. In other genres, I guess my, I guess I'm a little bit too commercial with my releases, but I have a lot of people in mind when I when I yeah. I mean, it depends on what your core audience. Is. I've always kind of liked that kind of lo-fi punk approach. You know, like, I like bands like Sun Ra and Huskadu and the, the Cramps and you know, a lot of weird, a lot of bands that were kind of like lo-fi on purpose. You know, maybe do it on the third take. But then you know they've got critical reviews because they like they had this honesty to their stuff, right? So uh, whether or not, if you think about Neil Young and Crazy Horse, he could go to Nashville and do something perfectly clean, perfect voice, but then he goes with Crazy Horse and he just goes off and like he's kind of like almost crying. His pitch is a little off, and there's something about like tonight's tonight, where it's tons of imperfections that people mm-hmm. wanted to edit out, and he said no, leave it that way. And if you mm-hmm. think about that, there's something about that that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I guess, I guess there's a lot to be said about what you what you just mentioned because, in the case, in the context of social media, I'm sort of forced to be imperfect and to play flat and to have intonation problems or, or to like release or to just have like awkward whatever moments. Mm-hmm. And, and, and often those awkward moments are highlighted by social media or maybe by the, by the viewers, or I don't know which one it is, how much mm-hmm. is being manipulated by the algorithm. Uh, but I guess that's what people like. They like to see mistakes and errors. And yeah, I mean, they, the perfectionist in us, it will, will edit out the stuff that but the weird thing is sometimes it's the thing that you think is like, that's no good. And that's yeah. what do you think is like the worst thing. A lot of artists I've read stories where famous artists are like, well, that's never going to go anywhere. That's like garbage. Right. And that's their number one hit. And they're like, huh. and then they're sitting there like, 
I never even liked that song, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the song that did it. And then the song they wanted to do, it didn't do it, you know? And then they're sitting there like, Oh, it's like, I guess I don't know my own music. <laughs> it's like, can the fans you know, actually pick the song, you know? <laughs> I, I, I feel that way all the time with my live performances, even with my, my single releases, I find that the, the, the successes are like, huh? Why did that? Like, like, weren't work? you paying attention to the song I just wrote? Like, I worked my <laughs> ass off on that one, and you're looking at this crap. And and like for live performances, like I just played like some real bad notes tonight, and you're you're complimenting me, or like I, I just I, it drives me insane, honestly, because I, yeah, I feel like right. sometimes I'm the musician; good. I should know what sounds good, but apparently that doesn't resonate. Well, the fans kind of take over, like, like what the fans like, what the audience like, yeah, actually yeah. can be really mind numb I mean, like like prince used to used to get really annoyed because he had i i love prince like he has this massive catalog of tons of stuff that never came out yeah and he he made Was that because of the record label probably because of the record label because they want to keep yeah the record label he just used to have a crazy output his output was like insane he got like ten thousand songs that never released but um and then well, he used to he, record <laughs> stuff in his bathroom yeah, well, yeah, his house was his recording studio. You know, yeah, he made a million dollar house is a recording studio. So he was living in the studio. He's writing like every, like all the time. He, they never stopped. So the yeah. problem with him is like, even on like the big releases, he would make choices and say, this should be the single. And then Warner Brothers would say no. And they actually were right. They actually picked the right songs. Because he wasn't going to pick those songs. Like he... The choices he would have made wouldn't have worked, and so uh, so 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 it kind of shows you like he was a really high level pop musician, one of the most experimental musicians to actually be in pop, uh, and 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 his choices were actually more experimental, and and the audience probably wouldn't have dug it, and the songs that like he was like oh you know that's not that great, and that's the one that made it. <laughs> but you, you know, know what you so look I at think, guys, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's what I meant. So I, I, you know, you look at like experimental jam bands like Fish, you know, oh, yeah, that's a good totally band. unconventional, just making huge waves with their fans, and and you know they attract long term, intense support from fans, and I don't know if it's just like certain brand of fans, I don't know, but those are the kinds of guys that would have latched onto his unreleased music. Princess. Oh yeah, yeah. His unreleased stuff, you know. Like I'm a purple head. They used to call people who would follow Prince purple heads, kind of like the Grateful Dead. And I went to Paisley Park one time, and I was there. I was waiting till like two in the morning for him to come out. And he came out, and he did like a power trio set at like two in the morning at Paisley Park. What? Yeah, he came out. Everybody thought he was gonna play like some hit. He came out with a bass player and a drummer, and did Hendrixian Santana like power trio cream like stuff for like two hours wow and there were oh. people they say in purple rain he's like no <laughs> it's like i'm not playing that tonight and it's like he went and he played like red house he went and did all these like uh you know cream like covers and he was doing like his own stuff that was in that type of style and i thought it was fantastic and i always knew that he's that level kind of guy he could you know do a clapton type set he could do a Hendrixian say he could do a Santana set because he's kind of in that mode. He could do it. 
and he, and he can't, you know, and he would. You know, and was... <laughs> you know it's kind of, it's got to be pretty painful uh, for, and I'm sure there are plenty of artists out there like him with serious talent that are limited by their audience and by the labels. And it's like, it's one level of like improbability to actually make it to that, to, to be playing these big festivals and major concerts touring the world. Uh, but then you could really be still, still unhappy because you're stuck playing the hits that suck that everybody wants yeah. to hear. And you want to yeah. play these other 10 other songs these, on your yeah, album that yeah. nobody knows about. That's, that's the problem when you get successful. Cause then like, you know, you, you gotta be careful when you get successful because like, what you want to do is, uh, you know, be true to your musical heart, right? And then yeah. the fans actually just want you to play your top 10 hit over and over until and you over, like don't yeah. want to ever play it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And pretty much yeah. like, what do you what do you get out of that other than like the fame? You don't get yeah, the satisfaction well, that's, that's, of playing that music. I guess you pay, you pay for your Learjet, you pay for your mansion. <laughs> so honestly, yeah. on that context, I just want to mention, this is why, one of the reasons why, like I, I've played a number of like, I don't know, I, I played a number of pretty, pretty large festivals and, and it's, it's fun and it's enjoyable. And I think like, would I rather have a life where I'm touring, playing the same hits over and over again, or would I rather have like a smaller audience that is passionate um, about whatever I play on a live stream concert type setting, like a stage it or a sessions type type of setting. Yeah. And I kind of want to do a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, I like jazz musicians cause they kind of get it the way they want. Cause you know, they can go out and reinterpret, especially like fusion. You, they can do it however they feel like it that night. And the fans yeah. aren't going to be upset about it because that's what they expect. Yeah. You know, so you know, even like a jam band like the Almonds, they could go out and they they would do their catalog, but they could go any way they wanted to go. And I used to yeah. see them all the time and they would just be like the dead. They just would go and extend it. And if they felt yeah. like, it, you know, they just jam on way longer than the original song. So it's not exactly what it was. And every every night it would be different. And so to me, that's more fun. I, I They seemed like they were having yeah. fun. They seemed like they really... You know, they didn't feel like they were just phoning it in. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to do it. Like, it's cool to have well-produced stuff like Michael Jackson, but Jackson hated touring. And yeah, I can for a that. number of reasons, I would think, aside from his health problems. But if everything's, like, produced to the letter, to the note, to the movement, it's like, it looks awesome. It feels awesome. Like, after the fact, you can see how cool it looked on, on uh, you know, on the camera. But, like, are you really enjoying the experience on stage when it's like this tightly produced Broadway show equivalent. Yeah. I mean, even the Eagles kind of, tore, the Eagles kind of tore themselves apart because during the hotel California era, it was my understanding that they find the band. If they didn't play the, the songs note for note, like on hotel California. So they actually will force themselves to, to every night play everything on hotel California, exactly as the record. Which totally wow. took I me. Mean, you got a guy like Joe Walsh on stage. You really want to rein him in and say he's got to stay within the confines of the original recording. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would also, you do that? <laughs> also, I would think that the people who are who are going through the effort to, to buy tickets, expensive tickets, and show up in person, 
um, travel that from afar. They want to see a fresh, a fresh production, yeah. don't they? Otherwise, yeah. they could just turn on the radio. Yeah, but I guess they thought, and you know, people wanted they heard on the radio, and um, it really kind of it, it really made the band feel like crap because they didn't have fun, you know. And I don't know why they thought that was a good idea because it takes the fun out of doing anything, you know. You know, I'm not even that in that position. When I do private events and somebody asks me to play Hotel California, in my head I roll my eyes. I don't actually do it because uh, I'm like, this is such an overplayed song. And then I play and I smile, but it's really like it's such an overplayed song. And it's like I play it to tracks, you know. If I'm not with a yeah. band, I'm playing it to tracks, so it's like. I'm jamming out, which is cool, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like I'm not level I can relate when somebody starts yelling "Free Bird," you know, we got to play "Free Bird." <laughs> yeah, there you hear the same cliches. Hey, same people want to hear the same thing, like, oh, let's play some Tom Petty, <laughs> play "Damn the Torpedoes," like the whole thing. Not, I love it, but it's like overplayed. So yeah, you know, so um, yeah. So I think we kind of hit an hour. So we yeah. But it's fun because what I like to do is like, you know, kind of a musician, uh, I, I try to make it comfortable, right? I try to, to get into a thing and we forget how long we've been talking, but we hit like an hour. So yeah. <laughs> I think it's really cool to have you here. I think it's awesome that you're doing live instrumentation. You're in multiple genres. I think everybody needs to check you out, com. Check out the link. It will be up there. We'll be on iTunes. We'll be on multiple platforms uh, check it out and I'll, I'll you'll get that as i send it to you through the through the um channels so you can send it to your fans but we're we're very appreciative for you being on the show tonight thanks so much for having me phantom it was really uh had a good time chatting with you okay. thank you yeah we'll, we'll surely talk again because you're, you're i think i think we got some good ideas together <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay. look okay, forward bye. to seeing you stuff all right have a yep. good night have a good night